Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based psychotherapists and mothers on this body-positive parenting journey with you, here to help you help your children fully bloom. Hi everyone, Zoe here. Just a quick word before we get started. We recorded this episode before the pandemic took over all of our lives We felt a little funny getting started with business as usual without acknowledging this crisis that is affecting us all. And we are doing our best to continue to produce our body positive parenting content for you as we all try to manage a very new world that we're living in. We really are hoping everyone is staying home and staying connected to family and friends via virtual platforms and taking comfort in whatever you have going for you in your life right now. So uh, Leslie and I are thinking of everyone and hope that today's episode still bears some relevance and can't wait to get to the other side of this strange time in our lives. Enjoy. A quick reminder that this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended for and should not replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast episode number 55. As a reminder, this season we are featuring questions from our patrons. If you'd like a body-positive parenting question of your own answered, please consider becoming a patron of the podcast at fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patron support allow us to keep this podcast going strong and your questions allow us to customize our content for you. So speaking of which, today's body positive parenting question is such a good one. Very complex. Okay, here it goes. I'd love to hear an episode about veganism and body image. My daughter is a college sophomore, and last year she made new friends and got super involved in some campus groups focused on the environment and food politics. She's been a vegetarian since middle school, but last year she became vegan. She also got really concerned with where her food comes from, Examples are local, organic, etc. She cooks for a vegan lunch group at school, has gotten the rest of the family to change the way we shop and eat, and has a summer job at a farmer's advocacy organization. I'm happy she's found this new passion, but I also have hesitations. She's always struggled with her body image. She has a bigger build compared to other members of our family. And in the past year, she lost a noticeable amount of weight. She still seems to eat plenty and is a healthy weight, but she's pretty fixated on what types of foods she will eat and where from. If vegan options aren't available, she won't. She never talked about her veganism or food politics in relation to body image, but I can't help wondering if there's something more going on. She shut me down every time I've tried to bring it up. 
Does it seem like there is cause for concern here? And if so, do you have thoughts on how I should respond? I know her concerns are real and that she means well. So as a clinician, I want to first just step in before we have our guest respond um, to say there's a couple things in this question that make me pause and want to point out that it sounds like there is cause for concern here in terms of a few pieces of of the question um, that I would want to support this mom to have her child seek some professional advice um, and a more professional evaluation. One being that she's lost a considerable amount of weight. We know and hopefully all of our listeners know from the podcast that usually that's not a good thing um, and that it often doesn't stay off anyway. Um, And so that's probably something that we want to just look at and and be wondering about and and wanting someone to, to help her with. The second piece is that she won't eat if there's not something available. That we never want people not eating, skipping meals and snacks. And so if that's how far it's gone, that makes me feel concerned and that we'd want to have her seek a more professional evaluation. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, I think the only other thing I'd add is, and I think our guest today is going to help us get a little bit deeper into the nuance of all of this, but... One of the things that is tough, there are a lot of people that do land in our office who have become vegetarian or even more extremely become vegan as sort of a way to mask or um, kind of masquerade the eating disorder. And in this case, and again, we're not making an, an assessment. We're, we're merely recommending that this mom uh, seek evaluation for her child but that she had been a vegetarian since middle school and then in college sort of ups the ante into veganism. I think that on one hand that could be a natural progression given some of the more political issues that seem to be important to this kid, but that there's some kind of tightening of rules or tightening certainly of restrictions and that that's coinciding with weight loss. And um, I noticed that even though this mom is saying she still seems to eat plenty and is at a, quote, healthy weight, that she's still pretty fixated on what type of food she will eat and from where. And that fixation is a word that's jumping out at me as like, well, we don't want to be fixated on food. And so I'm with you that this would definitely be a good idea for a referral. But for the purposes of today, what we want to do is appreciate that this question could have also been asked without those pieces, right? Where maybe you're not seeing weight loss necessarily, or you're not seeing a uh, fixation and that you... Or you, food refusal. Or food refusal, which really are those red flags. And that this brings up this question of like, okay, well, here we are talking about health at every size and body positivity and food freedom and all foods fit and don't vilify chips or whatever, <laughs> burgers in this case. And yet, it's not unusual to have a teen um, start, especially of today's in today's day and age, become impassioned about the environmental concerns and that that's sort of fueling their interest in how they want to eat. And so 
because there's such intersection and sometimes lots of gray area and nuance, we brought on Julie Nowak, who is an activist, educator, and writer whose work actually focuses on the intersection of food justice issues, body image, and disability. Julie, welcome to the Full Bloom podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. We're so happy you're here, too. And let's just get started with learning a little bit about you. Can you share with our listeners who you are and what you do? Yeah. So I kind of have my hand in a few different things, but primarily um, I am an educator, an activist. Um, I also do writing and consulting, um, particularly around the areas of food justice and how it connects to body positivity, disability, and other social justice topics. I came to this work kind of through an eclectic background. I have a master's of education that focused on adult education and community development, which led me to food education. Um, And I was drawn to food justice specifically because it seemed to bring together uh, my different interests and background working in the nonprofit sector on uh, environmental issues and public health and community development. Food just kind of brought all those things together. So most of my professional experience since then has been focused on food justice and community development in that area. And I started a a project called The Seasonal Body, um, which I started because I was wanting to connect more with um, the body positivity world, um, in part because Part of my own experience uh, having a history of eating disorders was once I became involved in food justice and actually started connecting to where my food was coming from and growing it myself really transformed my relationship with my body and my relationship with food in a very positive way. I was trying to find people or places that were talking about these connections and I didn't really find any. So I was inspired to start this project to dialogue about that. And and then as as well, um, I became disabled um, and have developed multiple chronic uh, health conditions after a traumatic brain injury a few years ago. And that piece has been added as well, because for me, disability really connects to both food justice in terms of how people are physically able to eat food and as well as body positivity in terms of how we're perceiving our bodies and how we're relating to our world. Um, and so for me, these three concepts are very interconnected. And so um, I'm now through this project, The Seasonal Body, uh, offering workshops and other educational opportunities like this <laughs> really to just spread the message about um, how these topics connect and also what these different movements can can learn from each other. Um, so that's a bit about me and what I do. Can you describe to our listeners, if they don't know, what you mean by the food justice movement? What does that really mean, um, kind of in layman's terms? Yeah, yeah. So there are all kinds of terms thrown around for this type of work. I use the term food justice because it's what makes most sense to me. Others use terms like food politics, food sovereignty, food security. 
but really for me, food justice includes all those things. So some folks might be more familiar with food security and food accessibility in terms of making sure that individuals have access financially and logistically um, to food. But food justice is, is beyond that. It's really about making our food system more equitable at all levels and for everyone involved. So that includes the individual who's eating the food. It includes the producers who are uh, growing and making the food. It includes the land and the animals and the transporters and policy and the global network of food importation and really all levels of our food system and, and all levels of eating as well in terms of making them more equitable and more sustainable. So that covers a lot of different type of work and different type of ways people are approaching some of these issues. So some people might focus more on food policy where they're trying to advocate for governments to put policies in place that change the food system, or they might be focusing on worker rights for those who are uh, producing the food, or they might focus on farming practices and pushing towards organic, and it can include animal rights in terms of how factory farming is done. And then it can also include more community level organizing related to urban agriculture and community gardens and community kitchens. It includes things like food banks and soup kitchens. And, um, and then there's the whole nutritional side of it as well. So within food justice, some folks will focus more on the nutritional aspect of of food. So that's the broader range of things that fall within food justice. One of the, the biggest reasons for having you on, and we were so excited to learn about the work you do, I think that what tends to happen, and and I think everyone listening may have a sense of this, there there can be this almost like, whether it's a misconception or just like this thing that happens and that really happens, where there's concern for all these issues that you were just describing and maybe folded into that is that sort of concern for like where our food comes from and how it's grown and making sure that we're protecting against, you know, genetically modified things and sort of shady things that go on in the food industry and sort of that, that sort of element of it. And then sort of on the other side, this like health at every size, body positivity, fat acceptance, like food freedom, don't be afraid of food. Don't make black and white associations around food. All foods fit. And I think what we're so interested in is what you, I think what your work is all about, which is the sort of intersection of it all. And a question would be, how does the food justice movement typically relate or not relate to the health at every size, body positivity, fat acceptance movements that we know you know a lot about as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is really the, the question, the thesis question of my work, because I, for the most part, am not seeing these two movements interact. I mean, I think in recent years, as the public perception of both food justice and body positivity have been shifting independently, I think maybe now there is more opportunity for people to be thinking in these ways. but. For the most part, I think these two movements are working very separately in their own lane and then sometimes are even critiquing the other one. You know, the, the body positivity movement 
may point out that the food justice movement has definitely used fat shaming as a tactic and motivation for people to change our food system. And um, on the other side, the food justice movement may critique the body positivity movement for saying, eat whatever you want, but unless there's food accessibility, people don't have the opportunity to do that. And so what I'm what I'm hoping is that we can just get these these communities and these movements in dialogue with each other and see where we have common ground, see what we can learn from each other and and go from there. You know, I would love to see the food justice movement and really all social social justice movements for that matter, um, integrate body positivity into structurally all the work that that they're doing. So I think these movements have so much to gain by talking together, working together, dialoguing with each other, and not just seeing what they have in common and where their common goals are, but actually implementing what the other movements are trying to do and also address issues that really cover both. And so um, for me, that's partly actually how I got into health at every size was trying to look online about who was talking about food and body positivity stuff and didn't really feel find people directly talking about it within the health at every size movement. But for me, it seemed like a potential bridging with the social justice analysis that health at every size was trying to bring to the table with fat acceptance, body positivity element. And so I think some key things that these movements can learn from each other. So on the, on the side of food justice, I think it would be great Um, Food justice organizations and projects really integrate a body positive mentality to not just their work, but all of their messaging. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, so often a lot of the mainstream media about food systems and food justice um, that you may have seen in documentaries or, or, or wherever often uses the quote unquote obesity epidemic as one of the reasons why we need food justice. And I mean, what I like to point out is that there are so many reasons to have food justice. We don't need to shame people's weight in the process of wanting a more equitable food system. That's actually the opposite of what the goal of the food justice movement is. It's actually harming the relationships people have with food that is making the food system less equitable on an individual eating level. Yeah, it's such a, I mean, I just, I know this this person's question of the week is, I'm, I'm really looking forward to really understanding your perspective on this question because I know, at least in my office, the orthorexia, the kind of when someone comes in, and even in my real my life, when someone tells me they're a vegan or becoming vegetarian because of the environment, I always have a bit of a distrust for that, particularly a teenager, because I'm just so concerned about whether or not that's true and if it, or it's just a a way to kind of an excuse to try to lose weight or, or manage their own body image concerns and how, and how the field Um, particularly with, I know food justice is so much more than being a vegetarian or a vegan, but I do think that that seems to be what hits our teenagers or their first interaction perhaps with food justice. 
the environment. Or the environment. And it seems to just have so little conversation about body image in it that it makes me really, really skeptical. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's what this kind of this mom is concerned about. Like, how do I how do I honor the food justice piece of this choice that her child is making? But how do I like be very be very careful that the body image and the kind of body positivity is 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 being taken into account and I'm so curious what your thoughts on this question is yeah it's sort of it's it's kind of connected to I think what you were about to talk about Julie how where there's space for food justice in body positivity in fat acceptance in health at every size yeah because I mean ultimately um, I think the health at every size in body positivity world actually has a lot to gain by incorporating this I mean for me personally connecting to seasonal food in particular and connecting to growing food and connecting to where my food comes from made me more capable of being an intuitive eater. And so we have to figure out, okay, but what does that actually mean on an individual basis? Um, I mean, in terms of answering this question, I should say that I'm not a therapist and I'm not a parent, but I can speak to it from my own personal experience because full disclosure, I actually do follow a vegan diet, but I am someone who is highly critical of the vegan movement. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it is appropriate in the North American culture, at least to promote veganism as the answer to the world ecological crisis. I choose it on a personal level in part because I just don't enjoy meat and I'm allergic to dairy. (laughs) So I'm a unique case where those are just foods that don't work with me and my body. And maybe there'll be a time where I, I do choose to eat meat if I realize that my body shift changes or, or whatever. Um, and I, and I do sometimes eat meat when I'm, when I'm traveling in order to be a more culturally appropriate guest in another country, especially as a white person. But in terms of this person's uh, situation, it's tough because I will say as someone who is involved in the vegan movement and has seen how other people engage in the vegan movement, there is so much judgment within the mm-hmm. vegan movement, especially if you're vegan and you stop being vegan. And there's this, there's also like, quote unquote, different levels of vegans in terms of, there's all this hierarchy politics within the movement. And so it can be really hard for an individual to, when they're being critiqued by someone who's not within that movement, to get super defensive because they have to defend this, Thing that is not even allowing them to listen to their their body. So all that being said, um, I think this parent has good concerns and I totally understand it. But I think if this person tackles it from the perspective of a non-vegan, it actually may just make the, the kid be more resistant to having the dialogue with the parent because the kid will feel judged by their ethical choices. And regardless of all the undertones, for most vegans I know, it is it is an ethical choice. And that's really hard to have your ethics being at odds with people who care for you in your life. So I would recommend the parent approach it from a completely different angle. And that is more the kind of the intellectual dialogue around 
how to make veganism actually more accessible. Because the fact of the matter is, is that veganism is not an accessible diet to many people in the world based on what's possibly accessible to them, based on where they are in the world, based, based on um, what health conditions they might have, based on their disabilities, for all kinds of factors. And so I think it's really important for veganism as a movement to incorporate an intersectional social justice lens. And what I mean by that, um, intersectionality is this idea that we all have different identities and those things interplay. So if you're a white woman and a black woman, you're both affected by sexism, but the black woman is also affected by racism. And so her experience is going to be different than the white woman. And so in terms of veganism, if the dialogue can start happening around, okay, what does the tenets behind veganism mean for indigenous people who have a history of having a very caring relationship with the land that we as the rest of society have destroyed and we're the ones who are telling them that they can't eat their traditional meats that they have respect for? Or what does veganism look like for someone who lives in a rural community um, without access to any grocery stores other than, you know, there's just like fewer grocery store options. And so I think if this parent approaches it from encouraging the kid with why they care about veganism, but more opening up the dialogue to say, okay, yes, how, rather than focusing it on the individual and what they're eating, broaden it to say, okay, how does veganism intersect with other social justice issues in general? And depending how that conversation goes, um, and I'm happy to also recommend intersectional vegan resources, then that those individuals may eventually get to the point where they start on their own to think about the rest of their experience and the rest of their identities. And if there's this trust that the two of you can have this open dialogue about veganism without critiquing veganism in and of itself, there may be a window opening down the road where you can say, okay, what does body positivity mean in relation to veganism? What do you think? Do you think there are some individuals with this severe uh, eating disorder history who maybe veganism wouldn't be appro appropriate for? Without it making, about, mm -hmm. making it about them, but more just um, zooming out and looking at the broader picture of what that looks like. And also on a practical level, veganism can be an individual choice, but it can also be something that is being encouraged to normalize um, dietary community eating. So, you know, if you host a community dinner and you serve a vegan meal, that's an introduction for all those people without judging them for how they cook in their own home and how they eat the rest of the time. It's more of like an offering and a sharing and a way of sometimes education. Um, so there definitely are ways to engage with the tenets of veganism without actually being a practicing vegan, if that makes sense. I actually, what I liked about your response is how respectful it is. And I too, like Leslie, get, because I think because of our training and because we have a probably a bias in, in the kinds of people we see, right? Like oftentimes it is a young person or a full adult coming in here and we discover that that has been the case, that veganism or vegetarianism or has been a way to engage in eating disordered behaviors under the guise of something else. 
And of course, that's not always the case. And uh, we don't know for sure if that's the case with this particular uh, mom and child. But what you're saying, I think, is a really helpful way in because it is. It's hard, particularly as our kids get older, it is hard for parents to feel even heard by their kids or, or like feel a sense of my kid is actually listening to what I'm saying to get the buy-in. And if the kid or teen is concerned about social justice, for example, it sounds like you're encouraging the parent to sort of lean into that. And rather than be skeptical or be critical of the choices that the person is making, sort of expand on the on the healthy part of what what is being observed. The other thing that you were saying that I think is really important, this sort of ethical piece, which which a lot of us are are starting to confront just with what we know about climate science and 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 the food industry and and it there's nothing inherently disordered certainly about starting to notice that your values um, are pulling you a certain way in terms of the way you think about food or feed your family. But the ethical piece of it, to me, it sounds so different from moralizing around all of it. And that if we are starting to notice that, if, whether it's ourselves or that our kids are getting a sense of moral virtue from the way they eat, that in and of itself is probably a bit of a flag because we don't want our sense of self and uh, value as a human to come from uh, something so specific and something so risky. It's like that good versus bad setup that really can make eating very difficult to do in a peaceful way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is problematic, not just for food as well. I mean, this idea that your diet is what's the most important thing you can do. It's the same thing as the vote with your dollar mentality. And that mentality is very problematic because it's an individualistic focus and individual choice is ultimately not what is going to make the biggest change um, in terms of policy and how we move collectively. Of course, it can be a part of it. But in the in the big picture, individual consumption choices are still forced to work within a capitalist system. And that means that individuals who don't have access to financial resources or, or um, access to even you know, where to get these eco-friendly items or organic food or whatever it is. And so when all this focus and attention is placed on what an individual can do on their, in their own life, related to these issues, it's kind of missing the point of social justice <laughs> because social justice is not about the individual. It's about the collective. But for kids and teenagers, I think there's often this sense of, well, what can I do? You know, I'm, I'm just a kid. What can I do? And so I think there is this drive for, for some individuals to say like, well, I, I can't, I can't even vote yet. I can't go to a protest, although I do encourage parents to take kids to family-friendly protests, side note. <laughs> um, there are ways to get engaged politically, but some individuals just feel like, well, at least I can, you know, at least I can take the bus instead of driving, or at least I can do this. And if that's all they're doing, then they're, then they're not actually 
seeing the fuller picture of what our collective movements are trying to do here, which is to change things on a systemic level. And so I think for parents who are wanting their kids to have a less legalistic binary way of looking at social justice and and how they engage with food is to model that. Like say you're someone who is an eco-conscious shopper and you, um, I don't know, buy some eco-friendly laundry detergent or something like that. When your kid sees that, talk about it in relation to bigger issues that aren't just impacted by that one choice or, or mention, you know, not everyone is able to afford this type of laundry detergent. What do you think we can do to make it more accessible for every individual to use uh, eco-friendly laundry detergent? And I think that way of talking in your everyday life, not just about food, helps foster this intersectional approach and non-individualistic approach that takes the pressure off of what you are putting in your mouth at a given time and um, makes it less about um, individual choice and more about um, systems. I really think that's such a helpful answer because you know, the the level of disempowerment that a teen has is pretty high, mm-hmm. you know, and so when, you know, they're still being living generally in their parents' house by their parents' rules and they're starting to want to be individuals. But so when they're when they're confronted with the the food justice or the environmental justice problem, which I think I remember being a teen and I'm I'm looking now at like the care about the climate generally coming from the young younger generation or the more it seems that way. That's not actually, I don't know if that's accurate or not. And I remember being young and feeling more connected to it than perhaps even right now um, in just a, a, a way that I think you really don't know what to do, right? We, they don't really know what to do. And so if there's this thing that they can control, which is, you know, not eating meat or dairy, for example, and that seems like a bridge that that's reasonable in that moment for that teen to be as active as they can be. And so as, you know, parents being able to be informed about, well, this is actually, this is the way that we can really make a change. You know, we're, we don't need, we may not need to do this in order to make a change. Or if you want to do this, that's that's fine. But there can, we want to be thinking bigger about this. And it kind of brings me to this question that you mentioned you mentioned something earlier, and I don't want to harp on it because I, I think I'm just more curious about your thinking, which is you mentioned something about being vegan isn't really the best answer to solving the food justice, environmental justice issues. So I guess my question is, like, what would you say is if someone's going to invest individually in something, what is the thing that you think is most powerful for them to invest into? Yeah. And just to clarify, I don't necessarily mean if the whole world went vegan tomorrow, that would obviously have a huge positive impact on the environment. It's what I was saying before that like an individual choosing to become vegan is not going to to change that. Mm -hmm. And so I would say if you're drawn to veganism because of the ecological impacts or because of the animal cruelty impacts, um, there are ways to get involved with those issues that do address them on a bigger issue. So you can advocate for factory farming to change so that the way animals are raised 
changes. You can also help promote, I want to say a reduction in eating animals, but I don't mean that on a, an individual level, but on a community level. So for example, maybe if your school has a cafeteria, maybe they do meatless Mondays, which is something universities do where like cafeterias serve only meat-free dishes on Mondays or something like that. Um, and it's like, that's a, a huge group like that not eating meat for one meal actually has a huge impact in terms of the, the outer effects. Or yeah, I would say like anything that's related to community meal or community engagement, making those spaces um, prioritize um, either vegan food or just local food is a way to support those local farmers and bring a, bring a awareness and attention without any moralizing about what individuals should be doing. It's more about how do we collectively shift what types of options are available to what we think of like, okay, what are the type of recipes I might cook that I would actually enjoy? Yeah. So those, those are just some things that pop into my mind, but basically look for ways to get involved with campaigns or other type of activism that are addressing the um, issues you're concerned about. So if it's climate change, then, um, you know, get involved with um, a climate protest or a petition campaign or, you know, your school uh, collectively doing some type of greening initiative, all those types of things. But the focus is on the community doing it and um, advocating upwards rather than the individual in isolation, um, figuring, out, figuring it out on their own. Yeah. We want to make sure that as we take in this information that we make space and we can even include a link to this on our show notes, sort of like warning signs that, you know, quote, vegan veganism is starting to look like an eating disorder, right? Just so parents kind of have a sense of what to scan for. And also to not assume that it's, um, you know, inherently problematic. Because again, like every kid is so different. Every, every teen is so different. Every human is so different. And, you know, what you're describing in terms of your approach to veganism, that it works for you. And I didn't hear you say anything in terms of what is good and bad, but rather what feels good in your body and what doesn't feel good in your body. And that you have the capacity and flexibility to be in another culture and to creatively adjust and that these are some of the things, this kind of flexibility is what we want to make sure we can preserve in our kids, no matter how politically strident they may be. (laughs) Yeah. And another thing I would say is that you are not obligated as the person who cooks food in the house to cook separate meals for your kids. I'm not saying there aren't ever instances where that where that needs to happen, especially with certain health conditions. But I I didn't become a vegetarian until I was 18 because my mom was a busy mom. And she says, if you want to eat vegetarian food, you can cook it yourself. And I didn't want to do that. So instead, I usually just ate the other foods and didn't eat the meat. And, you know, at the time, it wasn't even an ethical thing for me. Um, it was just I just didn't enjoy the meat. And, and because I think kids getting involved in cooking in a young age is actually really a great way to help them have a different relationship with their food, I would say that, like, if a kid wants to go vegetarian or vegan, be like, okay, cool, like, why don't we find a recipe and try it out together? And, and more, like, not put the onus on them to make it happen, but let them understand that it has to be a team 
effort and that there's work involved and that there are consequences, good or bad, by one individual saying they're going to eat a particular way. I individually have made the decision that the consequence that happens of when I refuse a meal someone has offered to me who may not be culturally familiar with veganism, that consequence to me is not worth it. But everyone has to make their own decision about those types of consequences. Yeah, I would say like maybe like that's also a way to feel out how serious they are about it is that if like they're not willing to participate in cooking and doing the research of how to cook in a different way, then maybe there is something else going on. I don't know. So being mindful of time for our parent listeners, we want to wrap up with the question we like to ask all of our guests, which is, if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did just one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend to do to help their child fully bloom? Mm-hmm. What I would recommend is getting connected as a family and as an individual and as a kid, getting connected with the food before it reaches the table. <laughs> you know, in my work, giving workshops to kids where we do a bit of gardening and then we cook something together and then we try it out, kids are way more likely to try something new if they have been involved in the cooking process or the harvesting of the, the food process. And I know for me, being involved in those two areas have been transformative in terms of how I connect with food and, and what I'm eating and being open to trying different things. But, you know, if you don't have access to a garden, I mean, you can garden on a windowsill or, you know, if it's hard to uh, logistically just difficult to cook with the kid, there are other things you can do. You can learn about where your food comes from, whether that means going to a farmer's market and meeting a farmer or just looking up on the internet where does such and such brand source this ingredient from? You know, say you're eating a granola bar and you, you could even just conceptually think about it. Like, oh, what are the ingredients in this granola bar? Oh, they're oats. Where do the oats come from? Let's kind of trace back where these oats came from. Would they have come from locally? Would they have come from internationally? Who are all the people who were involved in the production of this oats? And really bring attention to how special it is that this granola bar is in your hands right now. And all the different steps that went into that is actually pretty amazing. Um, and so for me, it gives me a whole new appreciation for all foods, regardless of what type of food they are, whether they're processed foods, whether they're you know local foods, whatever those foods are, thinking consciously about the story that that food has had without any moralizing or judgment about it, but more just kind of acknowledging and learning about it, um, I think is a great way to foster a mindful way of eating. And, and um, for me, has helped with intuitive eating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. And we'll link to some of the resources that you provided. And if you have more that you want our listeners to know about, send them our way so that we can add them to the podcast notes page. But thank you so much for your time thank today. You. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. 
And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can keep producing and delivering this content to you. Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.